Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Saab. Jeff is a wealth manager who has spent decades in the financial industry in various capacities. He's seen the good, the bad, the ugly. I recently read his book, Low Risk Rules, which is a manifesto outlining his approach. I highly recommend that you buy the book and we'll include it in the link in the show notes. The book is geared towards entrepreneurs investing significant sums of money, family offices, and investment professionals. High level, Jeff thinks that these folks make investing too complicated preferring odd, elaborate, illiquid schemes over investing in liquid, low-risk companies. He is very much a believer in buying high-quality, low-beta businesses and holding for the long haul. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Well, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to this. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. So you want to talk a little bit about how your career has evolved over time and how you started and what you're doing today? Sure. You know, I think my background in the business is, is somewhat unique, which is what led me to write the book, actually. So today I'm a portfolio manager and you know I manage uh, discretionary accounts for investors. But really, I came to that through a securitist route, which gave me, I think, a 360-degree view of the business, both from the perspective of the person managing money and the person who ultimately the money is being managed for. I started out actually 25 years ago in tax accounting. And from there, did some estate planning work, found myself in the insurance business. And it's from there that I really got into investing. I spent over a decade inside a family office. And it's the time inside the family office that I think gave me some, it turned the light on for me. To other people, this might be obvious, but it turned the light on for me in terms of the different ways that financial analysts and portfolio managers think about risk versus the way that I think a lot of our clients think about risk. And really also seeing what was marketed and how things were sold to the wealthiest investors. So that over a decade really gave me that perspective of the client. I learned to appreciate the value of the integrated approach to investing, right? So through a certain narrow niche, if you're in private equity, right, to a man with a hammer, everything is a nail. You don't really get that big picture view of what works for clients and what's best for them. And so it's stepping back, it's getting the big picture and really having for me, it's kind of the hallmarks of it are the simplicity, right? Having something that the clients understand, transparency, because ultimately it's their money. They should know exactly what's happening with it and, and how much it's costing them. So low cost would be the third leg of that stool. So that's, in a nutshell, my background and how I came to have the perspective that I do about investing. Awesome. So a big focus of yours is dealing with entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals. So what do you think are the biggest mistakes that these individuals make in investing? Well, one of the things that I discovered very early in my career in the family office, I would you know, start to build my network and family offices are very private, very insular. And so there's not a lot of, I think, public sharing between them. The sharing that happens between family offices tends to be kind of, you know, through informal networks. I started to go to conferences and, and meet other families and talk to them. 
And it really became apparent to me that they approached investing in a very different way, I think, than an investment professional might. So I was used to going to CFA conferences and in CFA conferences, I think we have a certain way of building portfolios and looking at risk and return and, you know, considering the liquidity and illiquidity of assets and risk and everything else. And you go to these family conferences and you talk to the families and it tended to be a lot about trying to get into something exclusive, something that a friend was able to get them into, something that was marketed as exclusive or special in some way. These investments tended to be very opaque, more expensive, illiquid, all of this stuff. And then I also found in talking to them, a lot of them didn't even track the results. So it's very easy to remember all of the good moves that you made and not remember the poor ones. I felt like also the, the leadership of family offices the leadership of family offices tended to be not as sophisticated. So who's going to lead your family office after you sell a business? It's going to be like your CFO from your business who you trust. And it's not necessarily someone who has the investment experience. So I felt like there was a disconnect in terms of the way that private investors with a lot of liquidity and a lot of wealth and investment professionals really approach the matter, right? And so I think that, again, favoring simplicity over complexity, it's something I write about in the book. It's not it doesn't come natural to us. But in my experience, and I think a lot of the research bears it out, you actually come out ahead if you do so. Gotcha. Yeah. And it makes sense that they want really exclusive, cool stuff because in most areas of life, if you throw more money at it, you'll get a higher quality and investing doesn't really work out that way. It doesn't work that way. And I say, you know, I call them prestige investments. They're marketed like they're luxury products, right? I can understand Not that it's something that necessarily appeals to me, but I can understand the appeal of an exotic sports car or a very expensive bottle of wine, right? I can understand the appeal and how it might improve your life. I'm not sure I can really see a prestige investment improving your life in any meaningful or measurable way. Right. Now, how? what kind of psychological shifts do these people need to make to invest better? Well, I think there's so many of them. The first one that I key on and kind of what the title of the book low risk rules comes from is the idea that people who've made a lot of money in their life, people who've created extraordinary wealth, they tend to have taken some big risks, right? I say that the fingerprints of Nassim and Taleb are all over my book because Fooled by Randomness was, I think, one of those formative reads that I had that really kind of awakens you to all of the different avenues that life could have taken. So what you're observing, there might have been a 1% chance of that happening. Right. So I think that people tend to discount the risk that was involved in creating their wealth, discount the luck that was involved in creating their wealth and believe that they've got it figured out, that they know how to make money. They're masters of the universe. And so even if they were really skilled in this one area, transporting that to the investment portfolio, totally different set of skills. Right. So the way you think about risk, where risk has really worked to your benefit to build the wealth, you have to think about it differently when you're protecting wealth. So now the objective isn't to take more risk. Now the objective is actually to take risk off the table. Not too much though, right? You can't totally pull back because, you know, then you're dealing with low rate rate returns on bonds and especially after tax. I think you want to have some inflation protected growth. So I think there's kind of a sweet spot in there where you're taking just enough risk and you've got it dialed in. And really the entrepreneur's experience to the point in their career where they've built a business and sold it or built a business and have a lot of money available outside of it. Like what led up to their experience with regards to risk that led them to that point are different. I think it's really skewed their perceptions of what risk really is. And that's where the investment mindset comes in, right? That's where the financial analyst, the investment manager, the portfolio manager comes in. And we think about risk in a very different way. 
we, our job is to think about all the risks. Our job is to think about all the things that can go wrong. And the entrepreneur cannot do that, right? It's, it's antithetical to them in a lot of ways. Yeah, they've made all of their money by taking more risks by always, and they're always told, oh, that's impossible. And then they'll go ahead and make it possible. So it exactly. must be a real tough shift to do that psychologically when they start investing. Yeah. And I say in the book, it's kind of like it, to some of the people I talk to, it feels like casting a vote of non-confidence against themselves, right? And they're not used to doing that. They didn't get to where they were by doing that. You know, I think that that's kind of this, if there's a main theme here, it's really about saying, okay, you don't need to get rich again. Like you only need to get rich once. So the risks that you're taking and the ventures that you're pursuing, like let's calibrate them appropriately. And I've seen a lot of people and now, I bet if you talk to lawyers and accountants and other advisors out there, they've seen a lot of people who had a big exit from a business and then blew a significant chunk of it, if not all of it, in future ventures. Right. Yeah. And that's a great point. You only need to get rich once. I always wonder, you constantly hear of rich people like blowing themselves up. They take on leverage or they're doing kind of extreme concentration. And I always wonder, why do they do that? Like, I don't get it. Once you've won, win, like you're done. Why are you doing this? Well, I think that's a unique aspect of their personality that makes them different from you and I, right? That's what got them to where they are. That's why they're uh, rich and I'm not. <laughs> kind of. In other words. <laughs> but I mean, I've seen the other side of it where somebody, and this is, I talk about the difference between, and we can talk about this, illiquidity and liquidity, right? And when you've got a liquid asset and you're seeing the volatility, a lot mm. of people come to me afraid of the stock market. I'm like, you don't realize you've been in a much riskier asset than a diversified basket of stocks. Yeah. For the last 20, 30 years, right? You just don't realize it because you didn't see the value bouncing the around every single so, minute. Yeah. Yeah. So they come to you and they're and they just want to like, they just want to put it in T-bills. They're like, please do not lose any of this. And that's not a practical solution either. And so there's actually, I found that there's quite a few people on one end or the other, and not a lot of people in the middle where they belong. Right. Gotcha. So what would you say is the difference between investing and speculation? I know that's a big focus of yours. So how do you define investing versus speculation? I remember trying to explain this to family I worked for, actually, and I wrote a, a very long memo. And basically what I did was transcribe the intelligent investor from Benjamin Graham. And I can't remember what chapter it was off the top of my head. But I mean, he explains it, I think. You know, I think when you're trying to buy something and hoping to sell it to someone else for a higher price, that's a speculation. And that's fine. I think there are intelligent speculations to be made. I think that an investment really is when you're, it's something that you're buying and you don't care. I mean, I don't care if it goes down. I think you can think of probably a lot of stocks that you own that if it goes down in the next year or two, the business is going to survive. And in fact, you know, management might be able to, you know, repurchase shares at a lower price. It might actually work to your advantage if the stock price goes down for a while. So, you know, I think that's more of an investment, something that you're buying, not with the intent to flip it, but with the intent to really hold on to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You definitely want to, an investment is something where you can get some cash flows, I think, and you can project those cash flows and then speculation. Like you said, you're trying to sell it for a higher price to someone else. And yeah, and the cash flow is, I think, a huge way when you just I mean, you think about us financial analysts, we stick, we cling to our cash flows because that's what helps us value an asset. That's why so many of us look down on things like gold and Bitcoin and even raw land, right? It's like, how do I value this? There's no cash flow that comes from it. So there's a lot more comfort in something like that. And there's a reason for that. It, it kind of gives you a, a grounding in terms of valuing the asset. Right. So in the book, a big focus of yours is how investment professionals 
make things needlessly complex or job preservation. Like you told that great story in the book where you met someone and then he outlines this super complicated investing program. And then you get a few drinks in him and he says, well, I'm just doing this to keep my job. And there's probably a simpler approach. So what do you think is a superior approach to what most investment professionals do, which is make things extremely complicated. Well, as I say in the book, I think it's kind of a way to guarantee yourself some job security. What I've seen in the past is, you know, when you're, especially when you're working with consultants or allocators, they'll throw in a bunch of different assets in there, right? They'll, it's almost like the more illiquid, the better, because then you don't see the volatility. And you're less likely to bail when things aren't going well. And in fact, they can often point to their portfolios when things aren't going well and say, see, we're holding up. You know, look at the private REITs in the last year. They've held up remarkably well relative to public REITs. So it creates a situation where there's definitely an element of job security. Understanding that is the first step then to figuring out what works better. So, you know, the first thing that I think that many investors do is they undervalue liquidity. Being liquid is extremely valuable. And when you read things like what Cliff Asnes wrote about that, you know, maybe there's not an illiquidity premium, maybe there's an illiquidity discount that you're actually, it's costing you money to be illiquid. So because it forces you to behave, why would any rational person do that, right? It doesn't make any rational sense. It's almost like you're trying to hack your brain to behave. If that's what you need, that's fine. I don't have anything against that. I just, you know, is it worth the two and 20 or whatever it is that you're paying on top of your probably very average investment returns that you're going to get out of it? So in my experience, what's worked best in terms of preserving wealth? And I've been doing this going back to, you know, the tech crash in 2000 and really kind of fighting upstream against this trend towards alternatives. In my experience over the long run, a basket of really blue chip quality value-oriented names tends to outperform everything out there. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, it is cheaper. These companies do tend to be, I mean, this is exactly what you write about. You're trying to find quality companies, quality management teams that can earn a high return capital over time. So those will tend to do better. But on top of everything else, in my experience, and this is where working directly with clients gives you kind of a behavioral insight into it. And that is that it does help clients behave if they look at their statement and they see names of companies that they recognize, that they understand. You know, I went through this. I can think of many discussions I had with clients back in 2020, you know, March and April of 2020, when the market was melting down and they wanted to sell everything that, okay, let's go through name by name and let's explain why we own what we own. And most of the time when you do that with someone, it calms them down and they stick with their plan. And in fact, sometimes put in more money as opposed to the reaction where you'd say, okay, well, you own this fund (laughs) and we're not sure what this manager is doing. We'll find out at the end of the quarter. We'll find out a month and a half after the end of the quarter, right? And then, so I think that that transparency and that liquidity all has a lot of value. And at the end of the day, it gives you a, a strategy that it's time tested. It really works and it's delivered results for decades. So I kind of laugh, especially at the, you know, in the high net worth and kind of ultra high net worth arena, there's the perception that investors should be investing in alts. And they talked about following the Yale model back in the day, you know, that kind of thing. And as like, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. It's pure, it's pure marketing. In reality, I think the simple, transparent, quality focused approach is really what does work. Right. So I think I'm correct in my understanding that you are an advocate of a low volatility, high quality business approach. Is that right? You got it. And you said the key word there being business. So 
you know, when we're, when we're trying to evaluate what is low risk or what is low volatility, I think that the focus should be much more on the business itself, on the nature of the business, as opposed to looking at the stock price. Right. So even though in my book, I spend a chapter talking about all the studies that talk about the superiority of a low vol and low beta investing, they're talking about the characteristics of the stock price. I think we should be looking at the characteristics of the business. Generally, those two are going to match up, right? Generally, a high quality business with low volatility results is going to have a stock price that matches that, but not always. And I think that if we ever get to a season when low vol really outperforms for an extended period, then it just becomes the flavor of the month and everyone will throw money into it. And all of a sudden, low vol is going to become pretty high vol and pretty momentum driven. So that's a possibility as well. Yeah. And I like how you talk about your collector of businesses. And I think that that business first approach makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think it makes sense from an investing standpoint. And I also like the point you made about how it's good behaviorally when you can look at a list of names and say, like, I understand what these companies do. They're going to stay in business no matter what. They're always going to be around. People are always going to need these products. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book to the entrepreneur, because I think this is a message that really resonates with them. You know, I think that and I'm, I'm open-minded in the book, right? I'm, I'm open-minded in general. <laughs> I hope it comes out slightly in the book. You know, I'm not, I'm not against passive strategies. I'm not against like more academic-oriented strategies. But what I have found is that this story resonates with business owners, right? With people who've kind of had their hands in the dirt for the decades, building something. They don't really get the academic stuff. So they're likely to bail on it when times are tough. This is something they really understand. Gotcha. And- Why do you think the low volatility phenomena works? Why do you think that, because it's really something that shouldn't work when you think about it, like from a, you know, a finance geek perspective, like more risk should equal more reward. And it doesn't seem like that is what actually happens in the market. So why do you think this phenomena continues to exist? I've given it a lot of thought. And the first time I encountered it, I think was probably 2007 when I read Pim Van Vliet's paper. And uh, I write about all this in the book. Uh, in terms of what they say. But I remember encountering it and saying, well, that doesn't make any sense, first of all. And second of all, like, I'm just a few years out of the CFA program. No one ever mentioned this to me, right? They showed us like the market returns line and all this stuff. It's like, this this relationship isn't supposed to exist. So I've been digging into it over the years, reading as much as I can about it. And obviously, when I wrote the book, I spent a lot more time reading all of the papers that referenced it, and even people who are critical of it. And people are really trying to figure out exactly what you just asked. Why does this work? And why is it so durable? And I think that as with a lot of these kind of factor-based strategies, eventually everyone knows about them. They don't work anymore. I think this is different. And I think this is different because it leans on something that is unique to human nature. And that is everyone wants to get rich quick, right? It's the same reason that even though we know that fitness gadget that I bought that's supposed to give me abs in 30 days. I know it's not going to work, but (laughs) I'd rather use that than like go on a diet and work out consistently for three years. Right. So it's this innate need that it's human nature that we have. We want to get rich quick. We want results fast. And so we just kind of will pay too much for the lottery tickets. And if over time you pay too much for the lottery tickets, then there's all these really high quality, really boring businesses that are just sitting there very unloved. And, uh, you know, eventually they always come back in style because let's go back to the cash flow discussion that we had, right? Like there's value there that's tangible that you can't deny. So it might be out of fashion for a few years or even sometimes like we're kind of at the tail end of a, a decade plus where it's been unfashionable. But ultimately, 
I mean, you look at the market right now, it's pretty crazy because you've got some very, very expensive stocks and you've got some really high quality businesses that are trading at like single digit multiples. So I feel like eventually gravity comes back into play. It's just a matter of when and who, you know, who knows when that is, but well, we'll wait it out. Yeah, I talk to a lot of deep value investors a lot. And I will often talk about buying like these really high quality businesses that are large caps. They might be in the Dow when they're beaten up. And their attitude is usually like, well, why are you messing around with that? You're only going to make like 12% or 10 years. I could flip this thing 50% in one year. And my attitude is that 12% over 10 years is a great rate of return. Why? But they want to knock the lights out and find these deep value situations that they can flip really quickly. Yeah. You've retailed on another reason. And I you know, called this one out in the book as well. The way the investment industry is structured, right? What do we want to do as investment managers? The bigger you can blow out the lights in any given quarter, any given year, the more attention you're going to get, the more assets you're going to gather. And it doesn't matter if it's sustainable or not. You can do a lot of marketing on a you know one or two year record. So there's, I think, all of these factors that are behavioral and structural to the investment business that is going to lead to people chasing these lottery tickets and kind of leave the boring, quiet stuff behind. And that's cool. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's like two ends of the spectrum. There's like growth investors who want like these early stage, exciting growth companies. And then I think there's the value guys who want to sound like really smart. They're like, I want this really complicated, some of the parts situation. Look how smart I am. I found this. And uh, yeah, the, the idea of just buying some like consumer staple. It's just not sexy to people, I think. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? That's the kind of the other thing is you fill up a portfolio with names that people know. And their first reaction was, well, I can do that myself. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, go do it then. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's true. You, you can, but you have to have the discipline to do it and understand, you know, exactly what you're buying and the underlying. But you know, that's, you're 100% right when you say that. For, I, I think the deep value game is really, really tough to play. I think that people like us love the idea of finding this, you know, tiny undiscovered stock. But if you're managing, you know, real money for for large portfolios, it's just it's not practical, right? You can't really do it. So um, I think you can do very, very well in large liquid names. Look at look at, you know, Meta or Facebook in the last uh, in the last six months, how, how much money could have been made in a stock like that, that everyone knew about. So um, and that's just one example. There's many of them out there. Yeah, I completely agree. In long meta, I think it's a it's a good company, and I bought it six months ago. And people were acting like, "Well, how could you have any unique perspective in this? It's such this widely followed company." And then look at it over the last six months. Clearly, I think there's still output to be made in uh, those large cap segments of the market. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think another thing that I call out in the book is maintaining your long time horizon. So really, that's our only edge, right? We're not going to outcompete the you know the big global banks who have investment teams and analysts around the world uh, and access to all sorts of data will never have but what we don't have is we don't have to report every quarter to a committee and they ask why did you own this stock and why did you not own that stock because i'll tell you the discussions that those committees were having before you know around the time that meta bottomed was why the hell do you own this stock don't you know that they're throwing away all their profits on this metaverse thing and Facebook is over. And so that's kind of, you end up in this area where in my experience, it's funny, the best investments I've ever made when I've told other people about them, they've thought I was crazy. <laughs> like I can think back to a few of them in my life where <laughs> I've put money into something and they're like, that's what you bought? Really? And usually that's a pretty good sign. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it generally is a pretty good sign. So something you've talked about was growth investing and some of the limitations of that. So 
Um, I thought a good example you wrote about in the book was Cisco Systems in the late 90s. So what do you think are some of the chief lessons of uh, that of that stock and what that went through? So, I mean, you know, we're, we're watching it, I think, play out with a stock like NVIDIA today, right? As yeah. amazing as the company could potentially be one day, and even though it's going to succeed, I don't think there's a lot of real true competition. I think that there's pretty unquestionable that 10 years from now, NVIDIA will be will be bigger and better than it is today. But yeah. how much are you willing to pay for it? And it's a notoriously cyclical industry and everything else. And you look at Cisco and you're saying, you know, people were paying 100 times earnings for this company. Did it even have earnings when you factored out stock comp? I don't think it did. I can't remember the specifics, but they're paid too much, right? So really it's all about valuation. Over the years, as I've gone through the market cycles, I've learned that, yes, sometimes you should pay up for quality, right? I joke that I've been waiting to buy Costco for like 25 years now, and it's never been cheap enough. (laughs) Sometimes you got to pay up for a really good quality company. But on the other hand, when you pay too much, when it's basically, there's no way that I can do a DCF and have it work out. And, you know, think of a stock like Amazon. An investor in Amazon has been very successful, but the Amazon of 20 years ago is not like the Amazon today right? There was no AWS. So there was no way the DCF would have worked back then. There was no possible way you could have had it work. So you had to imagine all of these new businesses being created and all these new sources of cash flow. I'm not saying NVIDIA can't do it. I'm not saying other companies that are expensive can't do it. It's a low probability bet. And what I say in the book is you got to bet when the odds are on your side. If you're making a bunch of low probability bets, you might get lucky, but the odds are you're not going to. So why do that? Like if you're already wealthy and comfortable, why would you do that? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, I agree with you about NVIDIA. Like, I agree it's going to be a winner. It's going to be a great company. It is a great company. It will grow significantly in the future. But when you do the math and you're like, well, let's say this goes to even a great, say it goes down to 10 times price the sales, you really need to achieve some heroic growth rates that aren't really possible for that stock to make money over the next 10 years. Yeah. And and the other thing that I learned about investing in the 90s, and it was the tech boom when people started valuing companies on price to sales. That was the first time that at least in my lifetime, people talked about price to sales. Mm -hmm. And then after the tech crash, nobody was valuing companies based on price to sales. And then I started to hear it again in the mid 2010s. And I just remember saying, okay, here we go again. Now we're using price to sales. So yeah, I mean, it's really a difficult game. And yeah, I'd prefer when you mentioned even something like price to sales, I'd always prefer to buy the stock that has actual earnings. You know, the multiple is give me low double digits at least, right? Like I'm not going to pay triple digits of earnings, normalized earnings for a company. That's that's a tough bar to clear. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But with NVIDIA, it's I think it's a 200p or something like that right now. So I'm going to say, okay, well, it's like 40 times sales. So let's say it goes down to 10 times sales a decade from now. But yeah, I agree. It's like once you get into P200. Uh, yeah, yeah. What assumptions are you making? And you know, this is the other thing I talk about here is, is FOMO is like, why do you have to participate in that? I think we instinctively see these situations and it's, it's that greed takes over. Like, why is that guy getting rich on this stock? And I'm not. I'm smarter than him, right? I do the DCFs. I do the detailed analysis. This guy's just buying the stock because it's going up and he's making money and I'm not. And so then you get this kind of chasing thing and you get people who start to, I think, stretch the definition of what value is. That's another thing that I've noticed in the last few years is that a lot of people, you know, they might have value in their name or their tag or something. And I was like, I'm looking at what they're buying, what they're talking about. I was like, that's not value. Those companies don't even have any earnings. <laughs> right? So yeah, yeah. I credit you for sticking, for being true to the name. 
Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely try to get good businesses and I try to get them at good prices. And I think I'm pretty disciplined with the prices I pay. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully that uh, yields some results. (laughs) One of the compelling, so on this growth stock conversation. So in the book, you also show a really compelling chart where it's growth rates or projected growth rates and then subsequent returns. And it's almost linear, like every single decile of these projected growth rates, these high projected growth rates underperform systematically. So why do you think that occurs? Well, that one shocked me, to tell you the truth. And uh, everyone I show it to is surprised. And that's that's one of those charts that, I mean, I didn't write the book really for the professional investor because I kind of wrote it to the client. But even when professional investors see that, they're like, wow, really? You know, I think that's the lottery ticket angle. That's people paying too much for growth. Also, I think a lot of, so my role right now, I see a lot of sell-side research. And I basically come to the conclusion that all research is basically projecting out in a linear fashion, recent growth rates. It's kind of all that's done. And so when you've got a company that's been growing fast, everyone just kind of, they take out the ruler and they draw a line. Okay, we've had 15% growth. Let's project 15% growth for the next five years. And then we'll slow it down to 10. And then we'll have a terminal rate of four or something like that. And then that's how you come up with these aggressive valuations. And that's not the way the world works, right? So I really think that it's the way that people value businesses, basically extrapolating recent growth linearly, it doesn't work. And uh, that's how you end up with the result like uh, that chart that you're talking about. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think there's the valuation aspect of it. And then it's just growth does tend to disappoint. You know, if you have a red hot growth rate at some point, that has to slow down. It can't continue forever. Yeah, mathematically, it has to slow down. Yeah. And it's, I always laugh, especially when you, you know, recently at the, I guess at the peak in 21, when you saw all these software companies and they were all projected to grow like, you know, 50, 60% a year is like, they can't all grow that fast because they're all competing against each other. So something's got to give here. Yeah. And then as Warren Buffett pointed out back in the late nineties, a lot of times these hot new industries never really make money for investors because it's so impossible to project who the winner is going to be. And they end up, it, the net result is they lose money for investors if you invest in a basket of them. Well, a big part of what I talk about is really not trying to identify getting rich on something that's going to change, but rather staying rich based on the things that are going to stay the same. Right. Yeah. And I think sense. what was the number one industry going back to the last century? I think it was railroads. Right. Like how many times were railroads supposed to be disrupted? And yet the companies have performed very well. There's these things that stay the same that I think you can make a lot of money simply kind of placing your chips on that bet as opposed to what's the next revolutionary change that's going to happen because everyone's paying up for it already. Right. So not only is it hard to identify winners, but you're already kind of almost fully valued on all the competitors anyway. So even if you do pick the winner, how much money are you going to make? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and railroads, that's a good example because railroads were a money-losing investment for a long time, for like a century and a half. And then around 1980, when the industry started to consolidate and there was less competition and it was well-established, that's when it has actually started to generate returns for shareholders. Yeah, it's it's a kind of, and again, it's it's thinking differently. And again, this should be something entrepreneurs are really good at, right? Let's not follow the crowd. Let's think differently. Let's look for opportunities. And that's why I go back to saying, we're going to buy businesses for you. You built your wealth owning equity in your company. And I think, you know, you and I would both agree that the single best thing you can put your wealth in is equities, right? Of growing companies. And so you built your wealth that way. We're going to protect it with the exact same strategy. We're going to own the same type of asset. All we're going to do is we're going to diversify it. 
So we're going to do what you couldn't do when you were operating one company. We're going to spread out the bets all over the place. We're going to spread them globally. We're going to spread them across industries. And really, it's all about let's own some businesses. Let's think differently. Let's look for opportunities, right? Let's buy those railroads in 1980. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. So in the book, you're also very critical of alternatives. So I thought we could dig a little bit into that. So let's talk about like probably the most popular alternative, private equity. What would be your criticisms of uh, private equity investing? So from a practical perspective, it's really hard to identify the managers who are going to outperform. And if you do know who they are, and they do tend to be kind of the bigger ones because they see the best deal flow, it's often really hard for the average person to get into those funds. Like you really have to come to the table with a significant amount of money. So right off the bat, I think it's difficult asset class for the vast majority of investors. Then you get to how it's, I think, marketed to people. And so for me, this is kind of part of my issue is, look, I don't have, you know, private equity is just another form of equity, right? It's like I said, I think equities are the best asset that you can own. And uh, if you're going into alternatives, private equity might be one of the best ones that you can access because at least you have that ownership in a business. But my big problem with it is when they market it as being an uncorrelated asset or when they market it as being a lower volatility asset. And that's not the case at all. I don't think that relevant to the book, I don't want to get into all the details about how, you know, investors are, you know, flipping these companies to each other and loading them up with debt and all that stuff. There's all sorts of issues. I do think there are good private equity investors and I do think that they can add value. I think that my concern is always with the way that it's marketed to investors, the costs associated with it, the illiquidity and getting into something in the wrong time. And so you know, just to give you an example of my practical experience with private equity, both in funds and investing directly in companies, some of the things that I've seen. So I've had funds that have been sitting on the books in some cases for over two decades because they've got investments that they can't sell, that they just keep asking for extensions on the term of the partnership because we got to get rid of this investment, but no one wants to buy it. So that's always a hassle. And it's never, obviously, it's always a company you'd prefer not to have in your portfolio. And then you get into direct investments and anything can happen there, right? Even with the most promising potential investments. I mentioned in the book, things like getting caught up in like management disputes. Uh, you know, I've seen that happen. I've seen, I've seen stakeholders suing each other. I've seen, you know, all sorts of, I've been pulled into all sorts of things where I was seeing a board chairman resign and disappear and now there's no leadership. And it's kind of, it creates all of these, these headaches. And in my experience, and it's obviously it's a small sample set, but in my experience, it really doesn't perform any better than investments in public stocks. In fact, often worse with a lot more work involved. I mean, every time you make an investment in a fund or in a, or a direct investment in a company, there's hundreds of pages of legal paperwork. There's issues moving money around. Sometimes if you're crossing international borders, there's other issues. It's just, there's so many potential landmines and I just don't think the payoff is there. That's my experience. And I'll go back to saying it again. If you've got more than enough money, why do it? So, you know, I'm having a discussion actually last week with the client and he had decided to sell his last remaining large private equity investment. And he had a health scare and he said, really, I've just decided I'm going to focus on what's important and this isn't it. And I remember he was he was a little worried about leaving his existing investors leaving them hanging because, you know, there had been bigger plans for the company. And I just asked him, I said, are you having fun? Like, is this what you want to do in your retirement? And he just said, no. And I think that, as I say in the book, if you're really into this, if you love it, because it's another business, right? Investing in private equity directly. I said, if you really love it, go for it. If you don't, if you're doing it like to make money, I think you can do just as well in public markets. 
yeah, I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that it's way better to just be able to kind of click a button and get away from a company than getting stuck into a company and potentially getting swept up in management disputes and drama with the board. I haven't even shown a stock. Yeah, I haven't even brought up the tax issues that, uh, you know, I had one that I own personally. I don't just talk about clients here. I've gotten sucked into a lot of these myself over the years. We're all fallible. And, uh, you know, I think it was probably 10 to 12 years after the initial investment and five or six years after the last share was sold, still dealing with tax issues because wow. of ongoing payments that were being received. And it's just like, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not worth it. Yeah, I hear you. So one of the people that I've thought has a really interesting perspective is Dan Rasmussen, where he's talked about how basically valuations for private equity were extremely cheap back in the 80s when like David Swenson was doing it. And now they're almost the valuations are almost comparable to public companies. And he believes, I think you'd agree, that returns are going to be less in the future. So do you think that, do you agree with that? Do you think they did well because it was cheap in the 80s, but now that opportunity is no longer there? I think they had a tailwind from falling interest rates. For mm, sure. That's a good point. And that tailwind has gone away. But I think good managers will continue to you know, I think when people say that the private equity market has more opportunities than the public equity market, I think there's merit in that. But then the structure of the fund is such that you've got a fixed amount of money that you have to invest in a certain amount of time. And so people just end up bidding too much for these companies anyway, because they end up bidding against other private equity investors for them to get their fees in the door. So I think I agree, but also there's always pockets of opportunity everywhere, really. For me, it's less of a valuation or an opportunity call than it is just saying that over the course of several cycles, I'm just not sure why you would want to do it. I think that I, and I can't remember what the study was that said it, but basically they said that the returns from a basket of private equity is essentially the same as a, a levered position in the S&P 500. And so if that's the case, why don't I just buy a slightly levered position in the S&P 500. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about another alternative. So venture capital. What are your opinions about venture capital as an alternative investment? I think I just covered kind of what an experience that a client had with it. Why are you trying to get rich again? Is kind of what I say. I think that, you know, I, I know people who are younger who've sold businesses and they're certainly not ready to get out of the game. In that case, you know, of course, keep going. Don't stop, but take some chips off the table. I always encourage them to take some chips off the table. The other thing that's unique about especially early stage private investing like venture capital is you think that the most you can lose when you buy equity is what you put in. And that's not the case because if the company doesn't do well, they're going to come out asking for more money. And, you know, look very carefully at the forecasts for the business because they might come back asking for more money, even if they are doing all right. And then you got to put more in to defend your percentage ownership. So now you're in a situation where, you know, you thought you were putting 5% of your net worth into a company and it quickly becomes 10, 15, 20%. So you have to be really careful about controlling the allocation that you would have to something like that, to spreading your bets around, which I think is very important. You know, I talked about in that, that in the book that venture capital investments are really just lottery tickets. I think that somebody who, if, you know, in the experience that I've had working with these types of entrepreneurs, if you've got experience in the industry, if you can add value to the companies, go for it. If you do limit the size of your bets, make more rather than less in terms of spreading those bets around, and then have a safety net, have a big safety net, right? Make sure that 
you know, you and your family are taken care of because there are several stories of people who've lost it all. Man, that's horrible. That sounds terrible to get rich and then lose it all because of private because of your venture capital investment. Yeah, it happens. And not only have I seen it a couple of times, but, uh, you know, I, I, every professional I talk to has a story, either a client or someone they know who went through that. It's, it's pretty common because these people are risk takers by nature. You know, that's what they do. That's who they are. I think they, in many cases, identify themselves as, you know, I, I start up tech companies. That's what I do. And when I sell one, I'm going to start another one and they do whatever it takes. How close has Elon Musk come to ruin over the years? Several times. And, uh, you know, there's alternate histories where he's not the success that he is today, for sure. Yeah, I think they almost ran out of cash in like 2017. And I think they ran almost ran out of cash in 2008. So yeah, he, he keeps rolling the dice and winning. Definitely encourage him to take some chips off the table. Well, I, I wrote a I wrote a Substack recently. It was, it was an outtake from the book. And the section was just called, You're Not Elon Musk, right? Don't look at what he did and say, I can do that. Because that's how a lot of people think, right? If he can do it, I can do it. But the odds are against you in that case. Yeah. So let's talk about another hot alternative, hedge funds. So what's, what's the case against hedge fund investing? So what I say when it comes to hedge funds and, you know, I say you're still investing in a business, but you're investing in the business that is the hedge fund. So you are ultimately hiring the managers of that fund to, you know, you're hiring them to run a business that manages money in the way that they manage money. The problem is for a lot of clients, they don't understand the strategies. So, you know, I remember, and to their credit, the family that I worked for said, we're not investing in something if we don't understand it. So even when I brought like a conservative hedge fund strategy to the table, they said, no, we don't understand that. We're not interested. And that's, I think that's what everyone should do. Because really, when you think about it, all of a sudden, if you're investing in a fund that can do all sorts of different things that you don't necessarily understand, you have to trust that management team a hell of a lot. They can get into a lot of trouble. I've met and spoken with managers over the years who said all the right things. And then shortly after you find out that they closed their fund or they blew up, you know, something happened. So it's a minefield. And again, it's so what are they doing? Just even when you say hedge funds, I'm kind of all over the place because there's so many different strategies. And when yeah. people say hedge funds, what exactly are we talking about, right? Are they really hedging? A lot of them are just trying to jump on momentum trades. And so now you're not really, you don't have a diversifier in your portfolio. Now you just have uh, another beta source in your portfolio and that might work against you. You know, I can think of one fund in particular many, many years ago. So uh, people probably wouldn't be able to track it down by my description, but uh, had a very large position in a public company and it was hedged to a commodity. And uh, the manager got really overconfident and decided to take the hedge off and then subsequently blew up the fund in, I don't know, half a year or something like that. And I watched it happen from the sidelines. Luckily, we weren't invested in it. But I look at something like that and I say, here's someone who I actually thought was really bright who I really would have had a lot of faith and didn't give him any money, luckily. But to see what happens, there's so much that can go wrong. Again, why, why take that risk? I like the transparency that I have in owning a public company that reports every quarter and we can ask management questions and we truly understand what's happening as opposed to a hedge fund where, you know, Lord knows what's really happening underneath. Yeah, I thought that the evidence from the Buffett bet was pretty damning, where you look at the average return of all of those fund to funds, and it's something like 2.8%. And that's what you were left with. I thought that was probably one of the greatest pieces of evidence against that approach. 
Absolutely. And I remember when he made that bet, even I thought Warren was a little nuts because I think the S&P was, was pretty high at the time. You know, it's so hard to pick outperforming managers. It really, really is. It's funny because even when I wrote the book, I joke that I think there's something in there to piss off everybody in the investment business because, you know, the passive investment guys love saying you can't pick outperforming managers. And I agree with them because I tried to do it for many years and it's just really, really hard to do. So, you know, I'll give them credit for that. It is. It's hard to do. Yeah. And then uh, another example you brought up in the book I thought was pretty amazing was that Terry Smith had originally brought up where if Warren Buffett got paid two in 20, he would now perform. I thought that was pretty, pretty incredible. That's pretty wild. And again, it goes back to the transparency and the low fees and understanding what you're paying. And I think a lot of people have this mentality that, well, as long as my fund is going up, it's fine right? I don't mind that I'm paying performance fees. And I've always, you know, when I sat in the client's seat, I hated paying performance fees. There was only one manager who I hired to charge them and did very well, luckily, but I don't like it. I don't like it from any perspective. And even from the investment professional's perspective, it's like, I'm not going to try harder because I'm getting a performance fee, right? I'm I'm trying as hard as I can. And if I the funny thing about investing is if you try harder, you're not necessarily going to get better results anyway, right? It's not about trying harder. So I'm not sure what purpose the uh, incentive fee has other than to take more money out of the client's pocket. Yes, that makes uh, makes a lot of sense there. So you talked a little bit about passive investing. So based on your dislike of alternatives and kind of your philosophy out the market, I would think you would be more of a fan of passive investing, but you're not. Do you want to elaborate a little bit about your thoughts about passive investing? Well, I, so the book is targeted towards the more wealthy end of the client range, right? So I think that for the vast majority of people, indexing is, is a great solution. I had some glowing words about Jack Bogle in the book, likening him to Jesus Christ. But <laughs> at the same time, I think that when you start to accumulate significant capital, now maybe you know we need to look at the downsides of indexing, which are you can't really control what you own. So my questions are, first of all, you know, who's deciding who's what's in these benchmarks, right? Doing some digging and learning about how the S&P 500 index committee worked was pretty wild to me because at, at the time they were voting on Tesla's inclusion into the index and there's a lot of subjectivity involved, right? So we're talking about moving billions of dollars around and it's kind of based on this committee's backroom votes. It's very odd to me that if you've got a lot of money that you worked really hard your whole life to create, that you're going to kind of hand over discretion to what's in your portfolio to an anonymous committee. Then, you know, uh, the other thing I look at is it's not necessarily what you own, it's what you don't own. So I talk, I talk in the book about, you know, crappy indices and how they you know, really kind of when you've got a smaller index that becomes more concentrated in one company or one sector. It's a common thing that we see up here in Canada, but you know, we're seeing it in the S&P 500 right now. We see an index that I think in the first quarter of this year, the top five companies accounted for 60% of the index return. So now we're not buying a diversified basket of 500 companies. Now we're playing a momentum game on the biggest companies in, in the benchmark. So, and some of those could be really expensive. And I look at Canada where Shopify would have been your number one holding in the last couple of years if you bought the index here. And our history of biggest companies is not good. Nortel, BlackBerry, 
So I think that sometimes investing success isn't just about what you own, it's what you don't own. And if you've got a lot of money, it won't cost you a lot more than a passive approach to create an actively managed portfolio that can really focus on owning quality and exclude some of the uh, more frothy parts of the market. Because that's what we're doing. We're trying to protect your downside, right? To me, that's the number one objective of the portfolio manager who's trying to preserve clients' wealth. The upside will take care of itself. I've got to protect the downside. Gotcha. Yeah. The downside seems to be, in my opinion, the most important thing in investing. Like You need to be cognizant of the risks. And often, if you're invested in equities, the upside takes care of itself. It's preserving your wealth during those big downturns that seems to be the major driver of returns. You got it. It's just math, right? There's no investment knowledge that you need to understand that you know if you lose 10%, you need to have more than 10% gain to make that back. And so the more you can limit those drawdowns, the better. And I feel like you can control the risk in your portfolio in a much more effective way by owning individual securities than owning indexes. Right. And there have also been studies that showed back to the, you know how the index is constructed. There have also been studies that showed that if you just like equal weight and held pick five just equal weighted 500 companies and then held it for a long period of time and never rebalanced it. That's a very simple way that you can outperform the index. Probably shows that there's some problems with the construction there. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just, you can kind of pull out any arbitrary, any arbitrary thing. That's a good example of why, what happens when you index? You own more of the stuff that's gone up and less of the stuff that's gone down. You tend to own more of the expensive stuff and less of the cheap stuff. I use the example of, you know, the energy allocation to indexes at various points in time. It really, really swings. And what you end up doing is you end up owning more of something at the exact time you shouldn't own more of it. It's a small tweak that can add a lot to the portfolio over time. So when we're talking about investing very large portfolios, why wouldn't I do that? And like I said, it's you don't have to pay a lot for active management that's able to do this for you. Right, right. Now... Something else you talked in the book that I thought was cool was you, you mentioned the point of uh, how you should ignore financial news. So why should investors ignore financial news? I think, yeah, I probably should ignore all news, but let's start with financial. That's true. <laughs> Their objective is to get views and clicks. The people who they interview always have an agenda. They're trying to sell a fund. A portfolio manager might go on CNBC telling you to buy a position because they want to get the hell out of it right? And they're looking for people to sell to. So we're going to talk about how great this company is on CNBC and it's going to pop, but we're going to sell some shares. This is a savage business. And if someone's not managing money for you, they owe you nothing. So think about what the agenda is for the news networks, for the financial news sites. They want clicks, they want attention, they play everything up. They will create frenzy over any given thing. It's kind of a joke that when CNBC has their markets in turmoil special, that's the time to buy. Yep, uh, sure. Except it's not a joke. It works. I, you know, So I just think that separating yourself from the noise is the absolute best thing you can do. It's so hard to do. Like even if you're just doing fundamental company analysis like we are, it's so hard to do because you know when you're looking at the titles of research reports, you just have to scan. <laughs> You just have to scan the titles of research reports for a company on any given quarter, and you'll know exactly what everybody is feeling about this company, whether it's negative or positive. And you and I both know, it's like, you have to think differently about a company. So now I've scanned, you know, the titles of 20 analyst reports for what J&J &J did last quarter. 
now that now has infiltrated my thinking about that company without me even having to click on the reports and open them. I have this kind of impression of what the quarter was like before I've done any analysis of my own. So, you know, for the average person who's not even aware of these biases, who's just trying to get their information, get their news, right? See how their portfolio did today or yesterday. It's such a damaging cycle. It's so hard to get out of it. And especially, now going back to the theme of the book and who it's targeted to, man, the entrepreneur, let's say you've sold a business and you've been engaged every single day. Now you've taken those proceeds and you've invested in the stock market. You're going to be so engaged with watching the performance of that portfolio. That's kind of your new job. That's the worst thing you can do, right? The best thing you can do is just kind of separate yourself from the noise. Go golfing, go to the lake, go get some fresh air. But some people feel like the closer they watch their portfolio, the better it's going to do. That's not the way it works. Yeah. And driving, watching CNBC every single day, all day is probably uh not conducive to good mental health. Yeah, honestly, like anything with a ticker going on underneath, turn it off. I don't care what channel it is. It's not good for you. It's not good for your mental health and it's not going to be good for your investment performance either. Good advice. Good advice. So before we wrap up, are, um, is there anything that you want to add or any points that you want to emphasize for the audience? You know, that's a good question. I think we did a really good job of covering the basics. I think let's go back to thinking about Building a portfolio, and in my mind, I always tell people who come to see me, your portfolio should not be a source of stress in your life. So if you're stressed about how your investment portfolio is doing, there's something underlying it that needs attention, right? <clears throat> is there too much risk? Is there not enough risk? Do you not understand what you own? Are you worried? I always tell people the time to address, if you've got some, some kind of niggling problem in the back of your mind, the time to address it is like when things are calm. Don't wait until the world blows up. And then say, okay, now we've got to change course. Now we've got to sell this. I got to sell this fund, do whatever, because then it's going to be too late. So if you do it yourself, make it a regular, a regular thing that you're constantly reviewing your portfolio with fresh eyes and understanding what you're comfortable with and what you aren't. And if you have someone else managing your money for you, make sure you understand what's in there. If there's anything bothering you, talk to your portfolio manager. Don't leave it. And always I say, you know, simplicity transparency, low cost. If you can kind of get that that trio, I think you're on the right path in terms of building a portfolio that's going to uh, that's going to serve you well over the years. Awesome. Great points. And uh, what are the best ways for people to reach out to you and learn about your work? Well, the book is available everywhere. It's called Low Risk Rules. So that would be one way to dive into a lot of what we talked about here today in more depth. If you'd like to sample my writing, if you sign up for my Substack at lowriskrules.substack.com, you can get a sample chapter from the book. And that talks about the low risk anomaly and kind of the research behind that in a more easy reading way. See, there's two things I didn't want to do with the book is I didn't want to make it a marketing piece. So it's not boring. I didn't want to make it very overly technical either. I didn't want to make it something that, that most people couldn't understand. It's really targeted to the non-investor. So you can sample my, my writing there. And that's been fun to do. It's kind of, I spent a year writing the book and then I took some time off. So I'm just now getting back into writing and, and getting some traction there. So yeah, you can find me in both those places it would be great. Awesome. And again, I recommend I recommend Lower Scrolls. It's a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. I would definitely check that out. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. This was a great conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. And you know, I just want to tell you that I think that I want to recommend your work to everyone if they've stumbled across this podcast. What I like about what you do is create structure around the idea of picking companies to invest in. And that's really important as well. 
is, so let's say you're going to go down the path of building a lower risk value oriented portfolio. You got to have, you've got to think about the kind of companies you want to own and your very consistent way of looking at companies, I think is a really good way to do that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's great meeting you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.